right. Well, good morning again. Welcome back. We are in week six of our stories in stained glass. Uh, just two more weeks of this. And so what we've been doing uh, for the past six weeks has been looking at these windows and some of the imagery on them and what they, what they have meant. And so I'm not going to recap the ones that we've gone through already. But uh, the one that we're going to be focusing on today uh, is this giant uh, eye <laughs> up here. And uh, it's, it's interesting. There's not like a big story. There's not this really cool you know, history uh, behind it. There's no dedications on this one. It's pretty straightforward. Just a giant eyeball. Uh, and the old book that we got on the history of the church uh, just simply calls it the presence of God. And uh, years ago, I was talking, when it was, well, years, we were in this building, so a couple years ago, I was uh, talking with one of the... Um, uh, chairman's, uh, one of the deacons, or uh, his name is Wally, and he grew up in the church. And he said when he was a kid, he would sit back, you know, in this area with his family, and that eye would just terrify him, right? And, and rightfully so, as a little kid, and, and, and he understood it as God's always watching me, right? Uh, and that's, that's true, but he, he thought of it as in a, in a bad way, right? Of like, God's gonna, he's out to get me, right? If I slip up, bad things are gonna happen to me. Uh, this was true of Martin Luther uh, if you, from the Reformation in the 1500s. He had, there was this uh, image, uh, relief on, on, on concrete or whatever, and he would walk through it every day, and it was, it was God, and he was so angry that the veins were popping out of his neck, right, of just this wrath, vengeful God. And I, and I think I grew up that way, uh, of, of being very afraid of God um, and not really understanding the gospel and the joy and the freedom that we have. Um, and, and honestly, if you look at it, it kind of reminds me of, of that. I mean, look, look at that image. I mean, that's like pretty cool. Even the way the woodwork goes up looks like the castle there of the, is it Sauron? The Eye of Sauron? Is that how you say that? Sauron, not Sauron, Sauron, Sauron. Sauerkraut. Eye of Sauron. But it's what, kind of, it's what it looks like. It's just freaky, right? Um, and you can imagine if you're a kid, that's what the image probably uh, is manufactured in your little brain. Um, and, and it, but is that what it should be? And the answer is no. Uh, and so I want to look at uh, this week and look at the eternal presence of God. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, 45 through 54, and then we're going to read all of Psalm 22 together. Uh, and so what is this? Eternal presence of God. Uh, and really looking at the question of, is God everywhere? Is God all-powerful and is God all-knowing? The fancy words for that is God omnipresent, is he omnipotent, and is he omniscient? Right? Those, those are the fancy theological words. That's all this means. Is, is he everywhere, all-powerful, all-knowing? Can we, can we actually say that about God? Uh, we call these the attributes of God. And sometimes attributes are, are broken up. Um, an attribute is like a, something that describes an individual or a person. If you've ever played a, a video game or played like Madden or NBA 2K or whatever, you can see someone's speed, right? They're, they're at 97 out of 100 speed. That's an attribute, right? Um, and, and God is all the way up to 100, right? It just I'm maxed out on everything. That's, that's kind of what this is. But these are incommunicable attributes, meaning we can be somewhere, we have a little bit of power, and we can know some things, but nowhere near total, complete of infinite of everything, right? God doesn't share these attributes with us as we, uh, as we live. But we can clearly see these in Scripture, 
And so I could, we could spend, I mean, the whole sermon just reading passage after passage after passage that just shows and demonstrates just these three attributes of God. Uh, but I just want to read one, uh, just a couple verses from Psalm 139, 1 through 12. It says this. This is King David writing. He says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. That sounds familiar of, of Job chapter 42 where, where Job is talking with God. He says, I see now, I understand now, things are too wonderful for me. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You're completely in control. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And so we could look at all these passages and we just see, yeah, God, God's everywhere. He's all knowing, he's all powerful. And there's, and there's a, lot of, a lot of that. But I think the big question that I wanna look at when we look at that giant eyeball, um, is this actually always true? Uh, in, our, in our lives? Is God actually always present with me? Uh, because if you're like me, maybe you've gone through a difficult time, you've gone through a difficult situation, you've been in a dark place in your life, and you haven't always felt the presence of God in your life. You haven't seen that. Right? I, I want to know, is God actually here? Because right now, God, I need you, I'm crying out for you, but you don't feel here. I'm not feeling comforted, I'm actually feeling abandoned by my father. And so, how do we go about this? Well, I thought, well, we can look at passages and look at you know, the rainbows and sunshine of yep, God's here with you and this is good and just all these passages that are encouraging. I wanted to look at the other side. I wanna look at the other side of scripture and look at Christ who in his darkest hour cries out to God and we can learn some things even in our own life in our darkest hour. So in Matthew chapter seven, sorry, 27, starting in verse 45, this is the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is nailed to a cross. He's being murdered in front of a crowd. And it says this in verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think of Jesus nailed to the cross, dying for his creation, for those who were created in his image. He's dying for us. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John Calvin says this, I don't have a lot of quotes because I, I want to stick to what the word of God says, but Calvin says this, you can hear the anguish that Calvin displays. This was the chief conflict and harder than all the other tortures in the sense that he was suffering emotionally and physically, but this idea 
of the sin of the world being poured on him and the wrath of God being absorbed by him so that we could have freedom, that was the most torturous. For not only did he offer his body as a piece of our reconciliation with God, but in his soul he also endured punishment due to us. Nothing is more dreadful than to feel that God, whose wrath is worse than all deaths, is the judge. He maintained a struggle with the sorrows of death, as if an offended God had thrown him into a whirlpool of afflictions. What I want us to do today, though, is I want to look at the Father. I want to look at God the Father, maybe in a different lens that we normally don't think of. A lot of times, again, with this eye, like Luther, like Walter, we think of God is out to get me. He's wrathful and he's mean and angry. Instead, I want you to think of a loving father in a perfect relationship with his son. As we looked at a couple weeks ago, this trinity of God the Father and this perfect image of himself that is his son in perfect harmony with the spirit. And what the father does is he looks at his son whom he loves and he punishes him instead of us. Here's the equivalent. Uh, Jack, my two-year-old, is a, is a, a wild child. <laughs> Yeah, my middle kid, all middle kids, I guess, are a little crazy, but he just doesn't care. You know what I mean? He's just like, I don't, I'm going to jump off this. I don't care. Uh, that's just how he is. That's just his demeanor. And, but, but it would be like Jack doing something, hurting, which he does a lot, you know, just for no reason. I'm just going to squeeze Henry's face and make him bleed. Why? I don't know why. I'm just going to do it. This is what happens. God, or me as a father, would go to Henry, the innocent one, and punish Henry rather than punish Jack. I can't, as a human father, fathom punishing my innocent son for the wrongdoing of somebody else. I couldn't fathom that. But I don't want to put my human emotions completely in God, but I'm telling you, they had an infinite, perfect relationship, and now all of a sudden, he's punishing Jesus and so maybe for the first time in your life, or at least today, I want to show you and not only think of the suffering servant of Jesus Christ nailed to the cross, but I want you to think about a father loving, punishing his son for your sins, for my sins. It changes our perspective of God. We sing a song Well, let me, let me ask this question. There's, there's kind of three ways to look at this passage of this idea. What does it mean when, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the first way of looking at this, and you, I'm telling you right now, reading commentaries, they are all over the place on this. It was actually very frustrating because I think it's pretty obvious. I'm, I'm, I know I'm right on this one. Uh, I was with a, a group of pastors last night. We were eating some homemade uh, pizza and like some, someone had a brick fire oven. Oh my goodness, it was so good. It was so bad, but it was so good. Uh, there was like eight of us and I'm pretty sure we ate like 28 pizzas. Um, so good, I'll talk about that later. When we're sitting around, we're talking about theology and I just posed this question. I said, hey, I'm, I'm preaching on this tomorrow. I'm just curious what your take is on this. And and there was a one guy who was a, a little bit more in this aspect, but the majority were where, where I was. So I was like, okay, I feel pretty confident in my, in my view. But it was interesting to find some things online. And we sing a song pretty regularly. 
uh, called How Deep the Father's Love, written by Stuart Townsend. And there's a line in here, though, that I think is misconstrued or misinterpreted or understood. And so this is the lyrics. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measures, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. Here it is. The Father turns his face away. Now, what does that mean? Right? And I think we sing it. So there may be some of us who think and visualize God abandoning his son. That in, the, in his son, the son whom he loves from eternity past, in his darkest hour of need, the father goes, I can't even look at you right now. And for a moment, the Trinity becomes a, a dual entity, which doesn't make any sense. Duality, whatever you want to call it. Jeez, that is the biggest fly. All right, suffering for Jesus up here. Um, I'm afraid I'm gonna inhale it. Like when I'm really getting into it, I'm just gonna <laughs> breathe it in. Paul, Paul can take over if that happens, right? But that's, that's what happened. I think we have this, this idea though that there's this, I'm done with you. I'm done, I'm abandoning you. And that's not true. We see this in 2 Corinthians very explicitly. All this is from God, that's salvation, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. This is God the Father reconciling us through Christ. This isn't a bad thing that he did to Christ. He did it so we could have eternal life. And he gives us now the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So when we see this I Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I've committed some really bad things in my life, but I don't have to fear the wrath of God and a lightning bolt. Why? Because he is not counting my sins against me. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. How could we ever be reconciled with a God through Christ? Because if I'm not in Christ, then that eye is terrifying. God made him, his son, who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness of God, excuse me. So when Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It cannot mean that God abandons him, turns away and is like, I can't even, I detest you in this moment. No, there's still love. Paul even said it this morning. It's not, a, it's not God turns his face away in an abandonment, but actually in that moment, in his darkest hour, I think he turns his face directly at him. He's there with Jesus. And I'll, hopefully we'll prove that. The other uh, question that came up. I only saw a few people that were in this camp, but does Jesus lose faith in his father? Maybe it's, I've just been around a while as a Christian. Uh, I've been a pastor for a while now, and I'm just sick of people writing dumb things just to write about it, you know, just to get their name out there. It just drives me bonkers. Because this, when you think about it, does Jesus lose faith? Listen, if Jesus loses faith when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he actually lost faith, so the entire universe would just cease to exist. Done. It just can't, it doesn't make any sense. 
So no, I'm not even going to spend time working on that. There's not, no, I don't need any proof, text, or anything. It just doesn't make any sense. So does it mean something else? Yes, it does mean something else. Now, I'm going to give a little pop quiz here. If you've been around Lower Town for a while, it's a fancy word, so you may not remember it, and that's okay. But it's a word that we use that when somebody has, says one thing or one word or quotes a tiny little passage, we've looked at this a lot in Hebrews and First and Second Peter, when they say one thing, they want to bring into mind a whole lot of other things. Does anyone remember that big fancy word? Metalepsis, yes, gold star, Emily, good job. Um, I, I was actually, I didn't think anyone was gonna, I didn't mean to, I probably shouldn't have done that, but good job, thank you for doing it. Yes, metalepsis. Okay, it's this fancy word. It's it's used in, in it's a literary device, uh, but we do that. We do this a lot. Uh, metalepsis is derived from the Greek word uh, metonyma, uh, which is a substitution or sharing. It's a figure of speech like uh, metonymy, which I had to click on the link for that one. I, I've never heard of that before. But that one uh, is there's a use a word. So the, the example they gave when you when I clicked on the link was. We don't use this phrase anymore, but uh, I'm going to go to the silver screen. Well, the screen isn't actually silver, <laughs> right? Uh, but well, we know what it means, right? I'm going to go see a show. I'm going to go to a movie, the big, the big house, right? I'm just I'm going to go see this cool, cool thing because they used to they used to call it the silver screen, right? So, but it doesn't actually mean it's a silver screen or a metaphor, right? He's he's strong as an ox. Well, no, he's no, he's not. Um, but a, uh, sorry, a, a metalepsis, though, however, is uh, an advanced form of a figure of speech in which one thing refers to another thing that is only slightly related to it. So, what do I mean by this? Multiple times in Scripture, uh, we do this. I've shared multiple stories of this, but um, uh, with my wife and I, we, you know, if I just say, "Oh, that ice cream is seventy percent air." It recalls a whole story for us when we were in Costa Rica and a guy was really into ice cream, right? Uh, so it's all, that's all you have to say. I can say this one phrase, but we remember the whole story. And this happens all the time in Scripture, where an author or Jesus will say or quote a tiny little passage of the Old Testament or even just a word, but they want to remember and recall all of this passage. And so I think when Jesus is nailed to the cross, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying, God, my Father, why have you abandoned me? He wants us to remember Psalm 22, which starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so now I want you to imagine Jesus hanging on the cross, suffering. He's got cotton mouth. His, it, it's in this passage as well. We'll see. Can hardly talk, but he cries this out. Why? Because he's probably in his mind quoting the rest of this psalm. And so in our darkest hour, in Christ's darkest hour, what is he getting at? Psalm 22. And I want you to picture Christ nailed to the cross thinking these words, metalepsis. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel in 
and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and am not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And this verse 8 is the scorn that they say. He trusts in the Lord. Let, it, let the Lord deliver him. Let, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like raving, sorry, like raving in a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my heart. My strength is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And right here, there's going to be a divide in this passage, in this psalm. That as Jesus is thinking of this psalm and wants everyone to hear as he cries out that the beginning of this psalm, I really think what Jesus is saying, I'm in my darkest hour and it feels, Father, that you're not here. It feels like you've abandoned me, but I want everyone to know the rest of this story, this gospel message, the rest of Psalm 22. As Jesus is suffering physically, emotionally, and spiritually, I believe that he trusts his father and wants us to trust him in our darkest hour because here's the rest. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him but he has heard when he cried to him. We've talked about sympathy and apathy and the difference between that of, of no, I, I see you suffering. I hear you in your suffering. But in this moment, God himself in human flesh is now able to say, I see you, I hear you, but I also know exactly what it's like to be betrayed by my friends. I know exactly what it's like to be betrayed by my family. I know exactly what it's like to be physically hurt, emotionally hurt. I get it. I'm there with you. 
I see you, I hear you, I know. David, and through Jesus, from you, Father, comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before before them to those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. You hear that? Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Now this isn't an evil, all-seeing eye. This is a loving God who gave his son for you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow and go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That should be encouraging. That in our darkest hour of need, we can see exactly what it is that God the Father did for us and it continues to do for us in our hour of need. I want to finish reading that Matthew 27 passage and just make a couple observations. Matthew 27 says this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land, and about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine vinegar, and he put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Which is a, a fulfillment of the Psalm 22, right? They mock me. They let him, let, let's just see if God's going to save this guy. And when Jesus had cried out again, and from Luke, we, we know that, that last cry, as Jesus is standing there, or is, is crucified on the cross, cries out in a loud voice, it is finished. I have paid in full the sins of all humanity that would put their trust in me. And he gave up his spirit. I've shared this before, but I have this image of uh, Jesus on the cross and there's this serpent weaving its way in, and the serpent's head is being crushed by the heel of Christ on, this, on the cross. And that comes from Genesis chapter three, verse 15. It's the curse on the serpent who tempted Eve and deceived Eve. And it says in that passage in, in, in Genesis 3.15 that he, the serpent, you, will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. I think, I don't know why, but I, I get this image of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia just in the book. Uh, and then I watch the movie, and so now I, I have actresses and actors, which is annoying. I liked the, what my kid, my brain made up, you know, when I was a kid rather than the movie, but that's all right. There's a scene, though, where the white witch is on this table, right? And has Aslan, Aslan, who represents Christ, says, no, I'm going to give my innocent life for stinking Edmund, who's a little brat. I'm going to give my innocent life for him. And Aslan, the king, 
gets willingly onto that table and the white witch grabs a knife and jams it into his chest and that witch stands up and says, the king is dead. In that moment, that witch thinks she won. In this moment, when the spirit is given up and Jesus dies, Satan, that old serpent, the dragon, the devil himself, thinks, I've won, he's dead. But in that moment, Jesus crushes that old serpent's head. And he wins the victory for you and for me. We were in bondage to sin and to death and to the devil. And Jesus crushed him with his heel as he exhales his last breath and says, it is finished. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, the earth shook and the rocks split and tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life and they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection went and he went to the holy city and appeared to many people. Matthew has a little, he's too excited. He cannot help but talk about the resurrection of Jesus. But then he goes right back to the story. In 54, he says, when the centurion, this Roman Gentile, the dogs in Psalm 22, standing around watching Jesus be crucified, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. In gospel application, I want you to know this, I need you to know this. That in your darkest hour, even though it doesn't seem like it, it doesn't feel like it, the Father will not turn his face away from you. He will not abandon you. Why? Because of something you did? Wrong. Because of something your parents did? No. He will not abandon you because his wrath was already paid in full by his son. And so I can look at this all-seeing eye of God and know there is eternal presence of God in my life and that should be encouraging. Even in the midst of sin, that should be encouraging. He's here with me, my sin has been paid for. It doesn't give me the reason to keep on sinning. It should make me fall in love with Christ. It should make me want to not sin because of what he's done. I now get to love Christ because of the finished work of Christ. Let me pray for us, then we were gonna have communion and sing a couple songs as we partake of the elements. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning as we look at your word, as we look at what your son did on the cross, that the suffering that he went through in a lot of ways is equivalent to the suffering that you had to go through as a father to see your son go through that. God, we view you as a loving father, a father who gave your only son for our sins, the punishment that we deserved. And that as we think of you present in our lives in our darkest hour in depression and anxiety and in the midst of COVID and loneliness and all these different things that have been going on, that we would see you as the comforter, as one that is worthy of praise, 
that we might read Psalm 22 and be reminded of the sufferings of your son and remember that you are always present, even when it feels like we've been forsaken. So God, I pray now that as we sing, as we partake of these elements, that you would be honored and glorified. And it's a Christ name that we pray. Amen.